0: Before we begin this episode, I want you to know that there is going to be some depictions of violence and abuse. So, if that is a particular sensitivity for you, or you have children that are listening, it may be wise to skip this episode. This is Esther, and for the next five episodes, it is my privilege to share her story with you. My name is Eddie Kaufholz, and this is The New Activists, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. And if you have ever listened to the show, first of all, thank you. But also, you know that our typical format is that every week we talk to a single guest about a single issue and we try to kind of wrap our minds around it. However, the story of Esther is not one that can simply be summed up in 45 minutes. Her story is complex. You see, Esther is a survivor, a survivor of slavery. There are over 40 million slaves in the world globally. Slavery is a multi-billion dollar industry, and one in four victims of modern day slavery is a child. Esther is one of those children. And so earlier this summer, I went to Ghana, where she lives, and I talked to everyone. I talked to her parents, I talked to her closest friends, I talked to Esther and I talked with those who have differing opinions. And in all of these interviews, something became very apparent to me that this issue of modern day slavery is more complex than even I thought. And I work at IJM, but the complexity of what I heard and the assumptions that were challenged are something that I wanted to share with you because you care about the world. And there is an unprecedented number of slaves in the world today. And if we're going to do something about this, if we are going to be a part of ending slavery together, it is important for us to understand the complexities so that we can be a part of the solution. A few programming notes about the show. First of all, there are going to be some thick accents, uh, Ghanaian accents to be specific, if you have a hard time understanding some of them, I would encourage you first to to not quit. Just keep listening because your ears sort of get tuned to the accent. But also, I'm going to come into the show much more than I usually do and kind of walk us through all of the different people that we are speaking with and I will explain some of the things that you may have missed along the way. And the second thing Just so you know, a lot of the names that you're going to hear are actually pseudonyms. I'm not going to come in and tell you every single time, but I can tell you this, it is paramount to the work of IJM that we protect those we seek to serve. And so none of the identifying names or locations or features of our guests have been revealed in order to protect them and allow us to hear more of their story without exposing them to undue harm. And with that, I invite you to come with me to Ghana a place that I love a great deal with people who are incredibly kind, food that is wonderful, and a culture that is lovely and loving. And while we are going to be talking about some of the complexities of slavery in Ghana, it's just dishonoring to the place and the people, and really to Esther's future to not talk about what is wonderful about this place. And so to start us off, Bishop Hilliard. You will hear a lot more from the bishop in future weeks, but I will say for now that he is someone who has churches all over the Ghana region and loves his homeland a great deal. The Ghanaians are loving people. They're loving people and caring, Uh, and a sense of community,
1: you know, with the issue of globalization and industrialization, community seems to be breaking down a bit, where a lot more Individualism is is trying to creep into the moral fabric of our of our Ghanaian culture. But the traditional Ghanaian hospitality is always uh, loaded with this sense of community, this sense of belonging, so that even every stranger has to be made to feel welcome, to feel a part of the community and to experience the people as they are. So no one will be able to feel isolated, or as a stranger, or,
0: you know, I would say that's quite typical. Yes, as a guest of Ghana, I would affirm, everything that Bishop Hilliard just said. And I want to share with you some additional thoughts about this from my friend Leonard at Cohn. Leo is the Director of Advocacy for IJM in Ghana. He mobilizes churches, communities, government partners, social organizations, the media, really everyone that matters. Leo is a part of that in Ghana. And he has some just incredible thoughts not only on life in Ghana, both positive and negative, but also why IJM is working in this country.
2: Well, Ghana, it's its a very peaceful place. Um, we are a people that are very hospitable, uh, very joyful people. Um, I mean, we have a very bad in economy. Um, in terms of infrastructure development as well, Ghana is beginning to see a major boost in our infrastructure development. Um, a- apart from that, um, Ghanaians love politics. And I mean, uh, you, you tune in your radio every morning and you hear all the conversations about politics. Um, apart from that, Ghanaians we, we really love our local food. Uh, we don't joke with our local food. Um, soccer is a big thing here and it's one of our favorite sports, so at least almost every Ghanaian, especially if you're a male, almost every male Ghanaian can play soccer because we love soccer and we love to compete at the highest level in terms of soccer. Um, And so, yeah, that's who we are. Um, But in in terms of um, education, uh, Ghana, it's also dual Into We have one of the best um, educational system. Not very good, but at least it's, it's, it's okay um and also in terms of providing education to other communities um outside the urban areas that's where the challenge is because most of the urban community most of the communities outside the urban areas really do not have the needed social interventions and so some of them do not have schools some of them do not have the needed hospitals and some of them do not even have the requisite human resource uh to support some of these things and some of these things are uh People's fundamental human rights, but uh, do not have access to them because they are not there. And so most of the things are happening in the urban areas, the city centers. But if you go out of the city centers, uh, life there it's, it's very challenging. What
0: misconceptions about Ghana do you think non-Ghanaians have? Because you you've traveled, you've been to the states. I'm curious what what y- you hear about your own country that may just not be accurate from outside of it?
2: Well, I think that uh, for most people outside, when they hear Ghana, they think that Ghana represents the whole of Africa. I've had that experience where people say, when you say Ghana, people think Ghana represents the whole of Africa. And there's that when you mention Ghana, we be asking where is Ghana on the map, on the World Globe map. I mean, people do not know where Ghana is located. Uh, the other thing is that people feel that Ghana is a, very, uh, it's a place where there isn't law and order, and uh, there's turbulence, uh, because we've seen some turbulence in some of our neighboring countries, and so people are under the impression that it's not a peaceful place. Um, So those are some of the the myths I hear from people who have never been to Ghana and hear about Ghana. They feel Ghana is like a very remote and rural area um, in the world, but that's not the case. Ghana has um, great, great characteristics. Ghana has produced some of the best um, uh, people in the world, like Kofi Annan, uh, who used to be the UN General. Secretary uh, and Ghana has contributed enormously to uh, world peace, um, especially in African countries and even to some extent the Middle East. Uh, We've had Ghanaian soldiers go um, onto some of these missions to provide and help um, um, sort of uh, ascertain peace in some of these countries. Wow. I'm curious, uh, there is slavery, as you well know, everywhere in
0: the world, including the United States. What made IJM? Um, decide that Ghana was a good place to come and begin to do
2: its work? It's, it's simply because uh, Ghana's uh, problem of slavery is, is quite unique uh, because you're talking about children um, enslaved on a very beautiful place like Lake Volta, the largest mummy lake in the world. And so uh, that in itself attracts a lot of global attention. It gets a lot of global attention that such a beautiful mamel Lake, um, the largest one of course, has uh, thousands of children enslaved on the lake. And it seemed like the laws are not being enforced. Impunity uh, was happening and all that. Um, and so IGM expressed interest. And of course, The government of Ghana was also interested in having IJM to to come and help it to address the problem. And so um, that's one of the reasons why IJM came to Ghana to work on this issue.
0: At this point, it is probably helpful to stop for a moment and talk about what IJM is. First of all, it's short for International Justice Mission. And the reason that the Ghanaian government has just been so open and so receptive to the work of IJM, and the reason that IJM has been so privileged to work in Ghana, is that IJM exists as a global organization that protects people in poverty from violence. The way we do this broadly is we partner with local authorities to combat slavery, to combat violence against women and children, and to combat against other forms of abuse against people who are poor. IJM works to rescue and restore victims, to hold perpetrators accountable, and to help strengthen the public justice systems. And so really, the story of Esther is also the story of how Ghana and IJM have worked together to begin to end slavery. Yet that raises a question. Why are there slaves in the first place?
1: Um, I would say that the number one factor is really a lack of knowledge and awareness in the general population.
0: This is Anita Budu. She is the director of casework for IJM in Ghana, and she oversees the aftercare, legal, and investigative teams. So
1: when you talk about child trafficking on the Lake Volta, there's actually quite a large amount of the general population who are not aware that this is going on. It's very hidden. Um, And it's hidden because within our culture or within our cultural system, it's very normal for someone who isn't your biological child to live with you. And so um, in Ghana, there's great value on the extended family network system. And so if you have an aunt or an uncle in the city and your family is struggling, there's an what we call informal fostering, where that family can send the child to their aunt or uncle in the city, they stay with them, they go to school, they are well taken care of. And to me, is this cultural system that could actually be a stream that is being abused and exploited. And so these same family members then take these children and exploit and abuse them without their parents' knowledge. And so without the general public knowing the full details of what is going on and the full extent of the abuse that these children are suffering, on the surface, it can look like, oh, it's just another case of a family relative taking on board this child may be a child helping out an uncle or an aunt, Um, but to me, I think the only way that we can really address or tackle this problem or make sure that, yeah, the only way we can really truly address this as Ghana is for the public to be made fully aware of the nature of abuses that these children are going through. And so it is not normal for any child, whoever you are living with, to be working 12, 14 hours a day not eating or having one meal a day, not having the opportunity to go to school and actually being physically, sexually and emotionally abused. Um, All these things are things that are not normal and against the rights of the child. So I think once the general public are able to be more and more aware of it, it will go a long way for us being able to address and curb this situation. Um, I would say the second thing that contributes to this going on is probably a la- limited resources for our government partners. And so in some of these situations, there are families that are struggling in rural communities. And so if the Department of Social Welfare and Community Development who are there to support these communities are better resourced and equipped, they'll be able to provide advice, information to families who may be struggling to prevent um, them from being exploited for these bookmasters who go into these communities, specifically targeting vulnerable families because they don't have that network of support around them.
0: And so Anita is perfectly articulating what happened to Esther and what factors led to her being enslaved Because two things are at play. First, there's a lack of knowledge and awareness of the general population. And second, there is just a lack of resources. And those two things mixed together make families particularly vulnerable. So next, I want to start to talk specifically about Esther's family and what happened. And I want to look at sort of the level of poverty that they are in, so that we can begin to try, maybe just a little bit, to get a sense of where she came from, which would ultimately lead to where she was going. To paint a picture of what Esther's family looks like, I would like to introduce Perpetual. Perpetual is a caseworker in the Ghana office, but more salient to our conversation today. She is the person who knows Esther best in the entire world. She knows the ins and outs of her entire story, and we will spend a lot of time with her over the next five weeks. Here is Perpetual talking about families in Esther's region.
3: So, um, normally, you see a family uh, who should be able to have a certain level of life like any normal family should have. Um, but uh, even sometimes their own family members would prevent them from having access to certain things that would make life a bit comfortable for them. For example, land, uh, property of their maybe husbands or children or whatever. And rather than allowing them space, to enjoy those resources that kind of bring them some relief, especially if the husband should even die, for example. You see families, you you see community people coming up to take uh, those basics from them, denying them the opportunity to have life. Um, They don't just take them. Sometimes they are abused in the process, either physically, verbally, emotionally. They are abused and uh, broken along the line. So... um, Even though they should be able to have a life, they should be able to live, they should be able to enjoy um, the little resource that they have and help their children grow up to become what they would have loved them to become. Um, They don't have a choice than to stay down there and suffer the rest of their lives. So um, it it could be anything, taking opportunities from them, abusing them, uh, some are butted, really beaten to the extent that you can't even recognize uh, them if you should meet them here. You
0: know, That's kind of depressing. Yeah,
3: sure. Because you walk into that and see that, don't you? Yeah, I do. How do you
0: handle s- seeing that?
3: It-, it can be heartbreaking sometimes when you when you meet situations like that.
0: Can we talk a little bit about? just kind of go beat by beat through what you know of of her story and, and feel comfortable sharing. Um, because as you know, this is about telling her story and trying to understand really how God moves in the midst of her situation. So um, what do you know about where where she grew up and what conditions were like when she was, where she was born and where she grew up? Okay.
3: So Esther was um, born in a small village, uh, the southern part of Gwota uh, region. Um, she initially, from the story she shared, she stayed with the parents, uh, but along the line, she had to stay with another woman um, to go to school. Um, and then the father, one day had a visitor, who happens to be a neighbor, um, came around and asked that um, they wanted somebody to, stay with some, someone else um, in a different community uh, to go to school, uh, whilst at the same time um, kind of helping them in a store after school um, to sell items. So um, the father agreed and gave her gave out. Uh, actually, it was the father who took care um, to stay with this uh, uh, master. Um, but apparently, after they left, the story turned different. It, it, the purpose was not for her to go to school. Um neither was it for her to stay and sell in a shop, but it was rather to work in the fishing industry.
0: Do you believe that the father knew that she was going with her family, her extended family?
3: That's what the father claims.
0: Here is Esther's father and her mother. Did you trust the people who you sent her with
2: Oh, my my and no he
3: got
2: you Okay. He said yes, and he visited
3: them before over there, so he trusted them. Oh, okay. yes, to
2: she says she, she has never been there before. But those that have been there before said it's a good place when they stay there with time, they will give them some sewing machine and I think for them to go into vocation. That's why she allowed her to go. Again, perpetual. What do you think?
3: I don't think it's the truth because um, everybody... I have done um, home assessment for about seven or eight of the clients that came from that area and almost every family I visited uh, keeps referring to this woman, let me call her a middle woman, as their family relation. And as much as I know that in our context, we have this extended family system, but there's something that doesn't add up to make that woman a relation of everybody, every one of the children that were rescued. Even if you look at their locations in the town, uh, it can't be true that they are all related in that manner,
0: yeah. I know this is just speculation, yeah. but What, what, in your professional opinion, having seen this a lot, what do you think was happening actually in that moment? What were the father and mother thinking and doing in that moment?
3: Yeah, so I, I feel that they were trying to cover up um, um, uh, something that didn't go well. They, they feel threatened. They don't know what the outcomes of their actions would be. So they needed to kind of um, defend their position.
0: I hear this and I just become angry at the parents because how could they do this? And I imagine people listening to this right now would just be angry at the parents because how could anybody possibly give up? How old old was Esther at this point?
3: When she was taken? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so she, from her her account, she should be about four. uh, But from the parents' account, she should be about seven. Or okay. eat.
0: So she's young. She was young. Very young. It it feels like it's just evil, but there's there's pro- it's probably more complex and nuanced than that. Can you share with me how you reconcile her parents' actions?
3: There's one thing that I I always talk about: the evil that we do live after us. Um, they they have done something that um, is evil and uh, now coming to terms with the realities of their actions, Uh, they are trying hard to kind of uh, defend themselves. But the other aspects of the uh, whole story, uh, in terms of what has happened, is that um, in those communities or in this part of our our country, uh, people come with the promise of taking children to school, and then they take you out. Some do send the children to school as promised, others don't. And so for me, what I kept telling the parents when anytime I meet them was the fact that they didn't follow up on the children. Because if somebody has come to promise you that I wanted to, to help your child uh, to assess education, as a good parent, what I expected of them was to do a follow up, because she's been out there for several years. So at least they should have followed up to find out what really was happening to her. Um, Has she been put in school as promised? Um, If not, what are the issues? Do I need to get my child back? But they never bothered um, to do that. Um, And to add to it, uh, after a while, they sent their other son, younger one, to uh, Esther. So that tells me again that they were irresponsible at the point because probably they have a number of children they needed to support. They don't have the means and all that. And poverty for most of them is, what, um, is the underlying factor for uh, some of these things. And so anybody who comes around, and, and in, this, in this case, because the woman is actually a native, they trust her more. They, they believe in whatever stories she is telling them. Um, So if she comes with a promise that the children are going to be in school, or they believe it, it's fine, take them and go. But I would have been expecting of them to kind of do, uh, maybe once or twice, just follow up to see what's happening to your child. Is she really in school? Uh, What are the conditions? Or even place a a call and check up on her. uh, I would have been more comfortable with that rather than just leaving her to her own fate.
0: If this was another kind of podcast, we would dig in right now and try to solve the mystery of what happened. We would try to collect more data and clues and see if the parents knew or if the parents didn't know. But the truth of the matter is, the work that we do at IJM is messy and there are not always clear cut answers, but there is a clear cut problem. And that is that there was a child who was somewhere between the ages of four and seven years old who was taken from her home by somebody that the family thought they could trust. And Esther was forced to work in the fishing industry in Lake Volta. When we think about what Anita said, Esther's family was primed for this moment. They neither had the education of how to prevent this, nor did they have the means or the resources to not be victimized in the first place. And we hear what Perpetual said, that she thinks that they had a sense that maybe they knew about it. And we hear what her parents say, that they did not know and that they were sending their child to work at a very young age to learn a trade and to have a better life. I don't know what is true, but what is true is that something terrible has happened in Esther's family, which is what brings us to this place where a little girl is on a boat on her way to work as a slave. Do you know how to write, Esther? I'll show you. Okay. Esther. Is it okay if I ask you some questions? Yes? Yes? And if there's anything I ask that you don't want to answer, it's
3: okay. Maybe Okay.
0: Do you remember anything about when, what it was like growing up there when you were very little?
3: How come, uh, so, whilst I was young, uh, my mother sent a message that one woman um, says one of his her brothers wants a girl to stay with them. Um, so they came. my father came for me together with some of my family members and brought me to the island.
0: And that is everything Esther knows about her childhood. She was home, and then she wasn't. On the next episode of The New Activist, we're going to look at Esther's day-to-day life on the island, how she was able to somehow cope with enslavement and the realities of her lost childhood. The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. My hope is that as you listen to this story, you would be moved to leverage your life for Esther and for all of the children who are still on the lake. Please go to ijm.org forward slash rescue children, rescue dash children to give and give generously. On behalf of my colleagues at IJM, as well as Esther, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.